9, 42 through 50. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible that is in front of you. It's on page 794. And we encourage you, if you do not have your own copy of the scriptures at home, please grab one, take one with you. It's our gift to you. Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great mild millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There in your bulletin, you have a place to follow along with some notes if you'd like to use that as a resource. You notice that the title of the section of Scripture we'll be studying here is we're working through the book of Mark together, Mark 9, verses 42 through 50, as we've just been read. The title is The Scandal of Sin. I'll explain that a little bit more as we get into this. I think the text will answer why that particular title has been chosen. Lord God. Certainly you are with us. That's an amazing thing. <clears throat> this God of all creation, who made it all, who holds it all together with his authority, meets with us in person. Thou God seest me. You've said, you promised you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And Lord, what I find so incredible is that the God of all the universe that we've just sung about, who did what we've just sung about in giving his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to rise from the dead, and conquering the grave, and, and giving us victory over sin and death in the grave, and giving us eternal life as a gift. This God speaks to us. We have the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out for us. But God, may we listen to you now. May it behoove us. May, may it catch our attention with what you have to say about the scandal of sin. Pray, God, that you would move in our hearts to take this seriously. And, God, to be a, a difference maker in this culture, in this time, because of your Holy Spirit at work within us to live out your truth. And, Lord, I pray that you would use us to bring many to Jesus. And, God, give us your power. It's not by might or by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Even so, Lord, move in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start this morning with these um, classic 
bulletin bloopers. You know, every, every church has a bulletin, and every church has bloopers that appear in those bulletins, and you're going, uh-oh, how did that get through? And we didn't see it until it was already published. So here's one. Applications are now being accepted for two-year-old nursery workers. We're getting desperate. By the way, there's a lot of truth to that particular announcement. And if God is moving in your heart to be working with us in our nursery, we would love to have your help. There's a whole process and, and background checks and qualifications and readiness, but uh, I just thought that was appropriate. How about this one? The visiting monster today is Reverend Jack Baines. I hope I don't look that way. All right. Or this one. The audience is asked to remain seated until the end of the recession. This could take a while. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, and this one. The senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. <laughs> You're expecting a large group, I think. But here's the problem. We don't take our sin all that seriously. We think it's kind of a joke. It's not. And that's a problem that we don't see the severity and the seriousness and the scandal in sin. In fact, many in our culture today don't even think sin is a thing. It doesn't, it doesn't even exist. That's one of those old religious things that doesn't count anymore. But it's still true. What God says doesn't change with what our culture says. It's still true. Sin is a problem. Today, to begin our study, uh, what I'd like to do is, what, I like to do this from time to time because one of my tasks as a pastor isn't just to get up and say something that is homiletical or, you know, everybody listens and oh wow and, you know, whatever. My goal is to literally work myself out of a job in that you learn to how to study the Bible on your own, and you don't need me around to get that done, all right? So one of the things I like to do is to just work through the, how do we analyze the Bible? How do we inductively approach the Bible so that when we, when we open the Bible and study it, we know what to look for, and then the more we look at it, the more there is to go, ah, oh, so that's what it's saying. Yeah, I get that. And then the Holy Spirit can use that study to draw us into fellowship with our Lord. So let's do that together here for the next few minutes. And what, what, I'd, like to, what I'd like to start with um, is to start with the verbs. All right? So in a passage, uh, you just go through and mark or highlight the, the verbs that are listed. And so I did that just kind of... Uh, it, uh, all at once, so you can see it. But that's what you can do. You can just, that's a good place to start. There are other things to do, but that's generally what I like to do, is I just take a passage and just take a minute to mark out the verbs. And sometimes that can be challenging because sometimes it's an infinitive, that's, that's a verb used as something else, all right? But, but you're looking for those action terms, and especially you're looking for the imperatives. I'm always looking for the imperatives or those commands when we're supposed to do something. So um, I have the imperatives underlined as well with a double underline. You see that listed there? So a bunch of verbs on this page. So there's a whole lot being expressed going on here with this. Uh, so those are the verbs. So that's a good place to start when you're studying your Bible is to look for the verbs. So you're back in English class 101 already again, all right? It's a valuable thing. 
But I do want to take a moment to look at one of the verbs that's mentioned several times that shows up that's very significant to the entire passage. And that's that verb, and in our language it's several words, but in that language it's one word, and it's on the, on the verses you see in front of you there, it's causes to sin. You see that listed there in verse 42 and 43 and also there in verse 45 and also again in verse 47. Causes you to sin. That word in that language is the word scandalizo. All right. So listed right there in that, in that passage, it's, it's, it's spelled very much similar to a word that we would have in our language, which is to scandalize. Ah, so when you think of a scandal, you think of somebody doing something that, uh-oh, that's bad. They shouldn't be doing that. That's a scandal. That's offensive. Everybody knows that's wrong. That's a, that's a bad thing. So to cause to sin, normally the word that's used for sin in the New Testament, uh, it's, it's a typical word for sin. It's uh, it's hamartizo, which that means that that's just the problem of sin. It's bad stuff. But this one is kind of unique in that it's a different word, but used in a similar way, which talks about something that is so offensive. It's to cause to be offensive, to cause to offend. Um, and that shows up four times in this passage, to cause to offend, to cause a scandal. You want to note who it is that is being offended. Who's being offended in what Jesus is talking about here? Is it other people or is it God? Who does our sin offend? Think on that for a little bit. We'll dwell on that. Also, a good thing to do when you're studying a Bible, your Bible in an inductive way, is you, you start to look for some figures of speech or, or ways that words are used to, to be able to make it pop and come alive, all right? And one of the ways that that's done is with a metaphor. And there's a metaphor used here in this passage, and it's in that little word, millstone, all right? That's a word picture in that day which it was, a, it was speaking of something that they all knew about, this millstone that would be, be pushed around, pulled around by a donkey to grind the grain so that they'd be able to make it use, useful for flour. It's a huge stone. No way any person, unless you're Samson, <laughs> no way any person could pick up that millstone. It's just heavy as all get out. So kind of keep that in mind as we look at this passage as well. Another figure of speech that shows up several times in this passage is that idea of a hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is? Look up the definition for that. Hyperbole is an exaggeration. You overdo it in order to make your point. So do you see the hyperboles on this page? To cut it off, verses 43 and verse 45. Also to tear it out there in verse 47. You see that? By the way, you'll notice that verse 44 is not listed in the passage here in our ESV. I don't know if you caught that or not. That, that's simply the fact that there was a scribe who, who repeated a phrase several times. It's still there. He's repeating it in order to be able to catch up with this whole hyperbole idea. It's, it's being exaggerated. 
All right? So we, as we study the text, we, study the, we, we can see that that was actually a scribal error or something put in there to add more to it. But it's still there. And that is that, there's, that the worm does not die or the fire is not quenched. That's really important for us to catch. And we'll see that here in a moment as well. All right, so this, this hyperbole, this must be a serious problem is if it's emphasized in such a strong way, overstating it. Don't go cut off your arm, okay? Don't go pluck out your eye. That's not what this is saying. It's, it's used as an expression to get our attention. This is really serious. Got it? Sin is really serious to God. We need to get his mindset, his view of these things. Uh, there are a couple of word pictures as well here that really don't show up as pictures to us, but do to them very clearly. And, and those that were written to in this time of the Bible, that word hell is mentioned there several times. Verse 43, verse uh, 46, verse, 40, yeah, verse 45, and then again, verse 48. All right? Hell, it's an unquenchable fire. It's the word Gehenna, as you see listed here. Now, that's part of the reason why it's a, it's a word picture for them. This place called Gehenna, where the fire never is quenched and the worm does not die. A little bit of history in Jerusalem. Gehenna refers to an area just outside of Jerusalem. It's, it's a valley called Hinnom, which became known as Gehenna. All right, so that's the word that's used here for hell. It's a steep ravine just outside the walls of southwest, the southwestern corner of Old Jerusalem, and they, they turned it into a, a, a dump, and it was burning constantly, and there was a stench there all the time of this town dump that was just outside of the city. That's where they were burning all their trash. A little history here. During the time of the kings in Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 28 and also chapter 33, a couple of bad kings, one by the name of Asa and another by the name of Manasseh, they sacrificed their children to the pagan deity of Molech in this valley. They would burn their children in the, this valley as a sacrifice. The people were worshiping false gods. It was one of the ugliest periods of Old Testament history. And while they're worshiping these false gods, these children of Israel worshiping false gods there in that valley, and they were there offering their helpless baby children, they were offering them as sacrifices to this Molech God. Unfathomable. Should still be unfathomable today burning their own children, killing their own children. No value for life. Well, finally, King Josiah put a stop to that, thankfully. And what he did was to deconsecrate that place just outside of town, that, that valley, that valley of Hinnom, where they were making these human sacrifices, this place called Gehenna. King Josiah turned this place of human sacrifice into the garbage dump. And there the trash from the city was dumped in this ravine, 
and it was set on fire, and it was always burning. It never went out. And they'd throw more trash on, and it would just burn some more. And they'd throw some more trash on it, and it was burning some more. And the worms that were eating the carcasses of those dead animals that were thrown out there, they never ran out of a food supply, and the worm did never die. It was the picture of a forever torment, a forever fire. That was their word picture. Just by using that word, they knew exactly what it meant, Gehenna. A place, a literal place of fire and stench and disease. Another word picture that, again, pops off the page to them should pop off the page to us. And that's that word salt and salty. I think it comes up here on the screen as well. Did I list that one as well, Denny? Salt and, yeah, so it's a bunch of times there at the end of the passage. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, Oh, I missed the first one. For everyone will be salted with fire. Hmm. Salt is good, but the salt has, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, that word shows up a bunch all over, over and over again, right? Particularly the last time it's used, you notice that it's an imperative. Be salty. The salt had a very, today we have refrigeration, we can keep things cold and keep things going, all right? Then, you didn't have that, and so in order to preserve your food, to keep it, make it last longer, you would pack it in salt. That's still done today, but not quite as, but for them, it was a very clear picture. And also, if, if, it, if it, what happened, if you didn't have that salt around there, there would be, again, I have all this decay, they would lose its purity. So be salty. So here's the mindset. With that understanding of the passage, that inductive analysis that's bringing out what's on the page there, let's grasp the gravity of what Jesus is saying. Let's learn to get God's view, God's mindset on our problem of sin. And he teaches three important mindsets for us. All right? The first is this. Prompting others to offend God really bothers Jesus. Prompting others to offend God really bothered Jesus. We read that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That really bothered Jesus. Is this speaking about these little ones? Is it speaking about children? I think absolutely so. I really do. It's certainly involved. There's nothing worse than causing a child harm in what they think about God. Sexual abuse should never be named. It's sick. And that should harm. That should really bother us just like it bothered Jesus. Physical harm to children. But there are all kinds of other ways that we harm our children in what their view is of God. Consider that. I think also the context here, as Jesus is working with his believers, these little ones that he's caring for, most scholars would say the context is that any of Christ's followers 
are his little ones. These, these disciples that Jesus is preparing to carry on the ministry in building up his church. How many have we misrepresented what God is saying? How many don't really get a grasp of what God is really like because we're teaching them the wrong thing about God? You can take this very seriously. I had a conversation with a man I met at a coffee shop one day. And he said to me, as we were interacting, he found out I was a pastor. He said, well, I just believe in being good. And he's an older man, probably in his later 70s at that time. And, and he had focused his life, his, worked hard, caring for his family, but he focused his life on being good. And just kind of dropped it there at that point. And later I had another talk with him and, and asked him, so to you, who is Jesus? You know, what, what shocked me was how... How he didn't answer that question. He didn't want to answer that question, who is Jesus? But instead, he, he said, well, when I was a young man, a priest I looked up to said to me, doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Presbyterian or Buddhist or Hindu, you just have to try to be good. So that's what I do. I try to be good. That priest... That religious figure offended that little boy in what he viewed about what God had to say. He taught him something that wasn't true about God. And all those years, this man believed that lie. And he sinned by believing that lie that was taught to him by a religious figure. Thankfully, after many other months passed, that man did trust Christ. But here's the question I need us to examine. What sins are you prompting to occur in the lives of others? By how you're living and what you're excusing or how you misrepresent the Scriptures? What sins are you prompting to occur in the lives of others? Again, looking back at the context that we've been studying over the last several weeks, what are the sins that Jesus has just addressed with his disciples? An argumentative pride? Arguments? A better-than-thou spirit? Clickishness? These are sins that offend God. What will scandalize the next generation? What will turn off our, uh, the next generation to the things of God? I think it's happening a lot. Certainly hypocrisy. Certainly inconsistency, saying one thing, living another. We need to add to that just the arguments, the tension, the, the uptightness that is carrying on in our homes and in our churches and, and wherever we live, and they don't see the joy of the Lord in godly Christians who are supposed to represent what God is really like. Bad attitudes, grumpiness, two-faced, all of these things. It would be better that a millstone would be wrapped around that person's head and they'd be cast into the ocean and drowned. Literally the millstone of a donkey 
That's the mindset that Jesus had regarding what was offensive to him and how we cause little ones to offend him. Let's take that seriously. There's a second mindset. Sin, left unaddressed, has desperate consequences. Sin, left unaddressed, has desperate consequences. Sin is a real deal. It's the thing that offends God. That's what I want us to get on this. And if we don't address it, or if somebody doesn't address it, there are desperate consequences long term. Now remember, the hyperbole here was very appropriate. You can't overemphasize this in, in a stronger way. Hell, question mark, is it literal or is it just a poetic structure? Look at the passage. Don't take what I'm saying. Just look at your scriptures there. Did Jesus present this place, this literal place in Jerusalem, as a picture of a literal place of judgment? I believe he did. The answer to, is it literal? Yes. Is it literally a lake of fire? I've not been there. I don't, don't ever want to go there. I don't know exactly. But I can guarantee you this, based on what Jesus is telling us, it's just as bad. It's worse than what was described here about Gehenna. The fire does not go out. The worm does not die. Nobody in the Bible talked about this matter of hell more than Jesus did. We can't ignore it. And I think there's a reason for that. I think if, if it had been Paul or Mark or, or um, Samuel or Moses, or if, if those had been speaking about it, we might be able to discount that by saying, oh, they really don't know what they're talking about. But we can't say that about Jesus. Jesus does know what he's talking about. He has always been, as God in the flesh, he has always been aware of all of reality, including this place of judgment. It's a fire never to be quenched. The worm does not die. Read a headline this week. We all know what's going on in the Mideast, and please pray. Um. But the headline was uh, Gaza becoming hell. It's not even close. It's bad, really, really, really bad in Gaza. I, I beg God for his mercy for those people. What they're having to face, the whole uproar of the whole place, literally being bombed into oblivion, that's bad. Hell is much worse than Gaza. That's what Jesus illustrates for us here. It's a fire that never goes out, cannot be quenched, and the worm does not die. It's forever. In our sinful condition, we tend to think that hell is no big deal. It's just kind of a a sad thing. But hell is a consequence of sin. For the wages of sin is death. Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the word of God. And the reality is we find it hard to believe this. It's hard to grasp this. It's hard to 
Take it seriously. Harsh reality. Unbelievers every day are dying and being ushered into Gehenna, the fire that does not go out and the worm does not die. Take that seriously. That's God's mindset. God is offended by those who would cause others to offend him. God says there are serious consequences for sin. It's more than we can imagine. Which leads us to what we really want to apply here, and that's number three, this mindset that must be in the mindset of the disciples that are serving Jesus, living for Jesus. And that is this. Someone needs to be salty in our sinful world. Someone, put your name in there. Someone needs to be salty in our sinful world. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what's that about? Actually, that's probably the most difficult part of this passage to grasp and to interpret, to understand. Everyone will be salty with fire. So in the context of this, those that are offensive to God, those that caused others to be offensive to God, that really bothers Jesus. The consequences of sin, the consequences of sin are really bad. So somebody needs to stop it. Somebody needs to do something about this. Somebody needs to be salty to have a preserving effect and a purifying effect. So everyone will be salted with fire. What's that about? So again, there's some biblical context to go back and consider from the Old Testament to bring into the picture so that we can understand it the way they did. If you will turn back to Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Excuse me, did I say chapter 3? Chapter 2. Chapter 2 in Leviticus references a salty sacrifice uh, set on fire. Again, remember the whole sacrifice system that is being illustrated in the book of Leviticus. Because God is holy, something has to be done about sin. He's illustrating to us what he will be doing. He's giving us the promise of the coming Messiah. And the purpose of of the sacrifice system was to be a testimony of the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And we need the bread of life. We need this one who has been preserved perfectly pure. And the purpose of the voluntary grain offering was to express thanksgiving and recognition of God's provision. In fact, the, the Jews just celebrated this holiday right before all these tragedies began a week ago. Sukkot. This idea of thanksgiving for God's provision and also thanksgiving, we need to see it this way, as the provision of this bread of life, this one who is perfect. Both present provisions and future provisions of the Messiah. So in the opening five chapters of Leviticus, we're not here to study the book of Leviticus this morning, but uh, a quick review there. there. There are insights to the five offerings, and you can look up each one of those and see how they're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But look at verse 13 of Leviticus 2. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant, God's promise, the covenant of your God should not be lacking from your grain offering. The offering should not be spoiled. 
It must be well-preserved. And salt did that in their culture. So with all of our offerings, you shall offer salt, we read. And salt symbolizes God's promise, his covenant, and God's enduring faithfulness to keep his word and his love for his people and his righteousness that is perfect in every way that is offered to us as a free gift. It had a preserving effect and a purifying effect. But we read, but if it is no longer salty, if it is no longer having this testimony of what God is for us, if it loses that, what good is it? It is not salty. If we lose our testimony of what God is like and his righteousness to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves, what good is it? It's lost its saltiness. It's not pure. Several kinds of salt in Israel had properties that made them impure. Normally, salt stays salty, but there are times when you have the wrong components that it, it loses that saltiness. It loses its purity, and it basically becomes worthless. Verse 50, salt is good. Kalos. Salt is good. It's profitable. It's beneficial. Your life, your purpose in life, it's good. God has a reason for why you're here, my friend. And there, in a world of no refrigeration, no ice, it was necessary to have a preserving effect that required salting. Salt is good unless it becomes unsalty. Christian, your life is good unless it loses its testimony, its purity. Ebert said this, The salt of a true Christian character is an excellent thing, but when it becomes corrupted, it's worse than useless. We need to have a preserving, purifying effect on our culture because of the gospel at work in us so that others can see the hope of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says while we're talking about salt and having an effective life sacrifice, a living sacrifice, Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable worship. Be salty. Be salt. Have an influence with the gospel. Christian, you're here to have a preserving influence on your culture. Run for the school board. Get involved in our community. Talk to your neighbors. Pray with them. Pray for them. Have a testimony of you're different because you love Jesus, not because you're better than thou. Have a testimony of, of a purifying influence. Why? Because the consequences of sin unaddressed by the gospel are horrible. And people without Jesus have no other alternative, according to the word of God, other than to face that Gehenna. couple of takeaway questions as we wrap up. I want you to prayerfully consider these. What is your influence on the little ones? Take this seriously. Are you causing them by your attitude, by your words, by your hypocrisy, by your anger, by your tension, by whatever else you want to fill in the blank, by your the kind of stuff you allow in your home, are you causing them to offend God? 
Number two, how seriously do you consider the reality of hell? Have you bought into our world's, world's culture that it's not a thing? Or are you listening to what Jesus says, who knows what he's talking about? It is. How seriously to take that? I think that's what's wrong with our churches now. We don't really see that that's a reality. So we're not urgent about the king's business, about sharing the good news. Number three, in what ways are you actively seeking to have a salty, living sacrifice testimony for the sake of the gospel message? Let's pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let me ask you to take time to consider those questions as we look to his word. What is your influence on the little ones? Are you causing them to offend God? How serious do you consider the reality of hell? If you're here without Jesus Christ as your Savior, the reality is, Jesus says, there is none other way given among men where might we must be saved. You must come to Jesus believing in him. That simple believing in Jesus is turning to him and saying, Jesus, I know you're God. I know you love me. I know, Jesus, you died for my sin. You rose from the grave, and you offer salvation freely, and I want that. Please, I come to you, Jesus, and save me, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I come. You come to Jesus in faith. You turn from your sin to trust him alone. Without Jesus, you're facing a Gehenna. Know that. I would love to talk with you about the answer to that from the Bible and to encourage you in your turning to Jesus and walk with him. The reality is God is a holy God and God is a just God and he must punish sin. But he did that by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross He loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, this holy God, this just God, loves you so much that he offers for you the gift of eternal life simply by turning and believing in Jesus as your Savior. Will you do that? Right now in your heart, call out to God who hears your prayer. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. The reality is, Jesus knows what he's talking about. You need a Savior. and Jesus Christ is the one and only who can do that. Not your religion, not your goodness. You need Jesus. And Christian, in what ways are you actively seeking to have a salty living sacrifice testimony for the sake of the gospel message? It's not just the pastor's job to be evangelistic, to share the truth, to develop relationships, to be a neighbor, to influence loved ones, children, neighbors, people at work with a question, with an offer for prayer, with a gift with an encouraging word. 
God will use that testimony, that living sacrifice, to be a witness as you speak of him. Will you ask right now for God to be able to use you to turn many from a Gehenna? God, use me to turn many from Gehenna. Give me the courage. Give me the conviction. Give me the compassion. God, use me. Lord, we've had the word of God open. It's the truth. You can count on it. We ask God that you would use every word of your word that we've just heard from the scriptures to speak to us and move in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to use it for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.